This is Changeling the Podcast. Changeling the podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host Josh, and with us is your other host Puka. Say hi, Puka. Bonsoir. What are we talking about today, Puka? We are diving into that most glorious of second edition Changeling supplements, Pour l'amour et liberté, the Book of Houses 2, covering the three, at the time, Unsealy houses. Mm hmm. Though they do suggest there may be other ones. Dun dun dun. I don't know if you have a physical copy and a back cover to peruse, yeah. but they made some big promises on the back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's even the big, there's, I have, I don't have it with me right now, but did your physical copy have a bunch of AE literature stuck together randomly throughout the entire book? It sure does, which is what happens when you try to drop in dashes into a font that doesn't support them. And my favorite is there's just this like SGML3 open tag with no close tag where they want to yes. enter. Yeah, there were there were choices made with fonts and stuff. I feel like, as I've said before, this is when they were just discovering all of the little features that Acrobat has and yeah. or PageMaker, whatever it was at the time. So yes, this is another art house book. The, the first art house book. Yeah, it's nineteen ninety nine, written by Jackie Caseta and Nikki Ria, and developer vampire guy Justin Achille. We do get something of an explanation for this at the end of the book, so mm-hmm. maybe just table that for now. And this, my copy was actually printed in Canada again, because I yeah. think this is when printing in when Canada was cheap again. So. Mine, mine says the USA. I mean, oh well, yeah. So, <laughs> for anyone who's unfamiliar with Outhouse, there is a box on the title page, whatever, mm-hmm. that says, "What is Art House? It's White Wolf's newest imprint. White Wolf's mission has always been to create art that entertains." White Wolf Art House is the embodiment of this ideal. Modeled after small press, the Art House team strives to create those games and projects that are new, experimental, and unique. White Wolf Art House now manages whole game lines, supports others, and creates specialty projects wherever possible. I think we need to have a moment to talk about what this actually means. Mm-hmm. So my understanding is that Art House was kind of like White Wolf's place where they put games out to pasture in a sense or like yeah. the lines that they expected to sell less they just kind of relegated there and consequently they had lower budgets yeah I'm a little bit confused what it really meant as opposed to just a lower budget world of darkness i think it was also print on demand or, or had much smaller print runs that were kind of mm. like they would do them as needed if i remember correctly mm-hmm. but yeah it's also clear from the relative dearth of art in these books the sort of editing oversights that pop up and the comparatively Mm -hmm. few people who worked on some of these i mean jackie and nikki wrote it carrie goff edited it there are three artists one for each house Mm -hmm. and that's really it i mean there's like the art director the developer etc but those are just general things so not many people really touched this book Yep. So. I, I would say in terms of writing quality, though, we're editing oh, yeah. level, like we're making fun. I don't think it's really any different than the other Changeling books. No, of course. It. Yeah. It's the same people. I mean, it's yeah. just, you know. But it doesn't even feel particularly more rushed to me or anything. It's just, you can tell the art budget was dropped. Yeah. I do get the sense that this is another one of those books that may have been kind of lingering in the wings for a while. Mm-hmm. But maybe not quite as much as some of the other ones that 
were probably in the works for years. Mm-hmm. So. so yeah, structurally, this is like, there's no introduction. Mm-hmm. It's just the three chapters and each chapter is one of the houses. And they're like almost exactly 50 pages each. And yeah. Let's dive right in. Yeah. So starting out with uh, book one, House Allele, Shapers of the Endless Winter. Artist, Melissa Uran. Yes. I do think the artists were actually well suited for the houses that they got. Mm-hmm. So like her work fits really well with the write-up of House Elil and Drew Tucker's yeah. fits with House Leonin and James Stowe's fits with House Bailey. Yeah. And Elil, if there's going to be anybody who's got a black and white changeling book. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we start with a really long story. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, this is... If you want to quickly summarize it, quickly summarize it. I don't think we need the... <laughs> Yeah, so, all right, I, I do have a, a summary in my notes here. We have Count Declan ap Elil. He saves a Dugalshi named Ganon and takes him to this freehold called Silverwood in the Shenandoah Valley, mm-hmm. where Lady Arlana of House Elil is also hanging out. And she grants first to Declan and then Ganon three days and three nights of formal hospitality. Oh, after, after Ganon was beat up by cold iron and stuff. Thugs. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is healed along with his face steed and taken mm-hmm. to Silverwood to recuperate. Mm-hmm. But Ganon is bearing an official missive that seems to say Declan is wanted for questioning in the recent disappearance of David Ardry. But mm-hmm. as they have three days to just hang out before he has to execute that order, they kind of become friends. And eventually they have these memories of Arcadia where pre-shattering Ganon saved pre-shattering Declan as they were fleeing to Arcadia. So it's this big sort of conundrum about who owes what to whom and which debts and oaths have been discharged Mm -hmm. and whatever. But then Ganon kind of says, oh, well, you know, I'll I'll speak on your behalf if they actually want to arrest you or whatever, because I think you're a cool guy. Uh, But then ultimately Mm -hmm. Declan slips away in the night and Ganon is left with a lot to think about. But then it turns out that Declan is actually a big sneak because he changed the word on the summons and it was actually for Lady Arlana. So he bought her time to get away. Mm-hmm. Even though the story was long, it was good, I thought. It kind of yeah. demonstrated a lot of the sort of deep level machinations of the house and their mm-hmm. unabashedly unseely, but that doesn't mean they're bad kind of nature. So yeah, I was... Yeah. I was that doesn't mean they're not bad either. <laughs> I, absolutely. I thought yeah. there would be a twist like Declan had secretly paid the gang to attack Ganon and then whatever, but it turned out to be very romantic and bittersweet rather than Machiavellian as the mm-hmm. epigraph would have you. Oh, wait, he didn't hire them? I was a little bit confused by that. I think so, but maybe? Yeah. Unclear. Either way, he put himself at risk too. Yeah. yeah. Although if, I guess if he was pulled in, they'd be like, um, you brought the wrong guy. So yeah. So, yeah. But that's that's like mm. a 12-page story or something. So. Yeah. And like, once we pass the story, it's all written in character, basically. Yeah. All the ones in this book, I mean. So. Yes. We transition into a discourse on House Elil by Lady Slanya, mm-hmm. recorder for High Lord Erdath. Which is the big history section. I wonder like just how many times the mythic age was written as like a header <laughs> in a changeling book. Because three in this one. Lots. So, yeah. I will say for all of my griping about kiss books that don't go into enough detail about the more recent centuries. Mm-hmm. I'm more okay with it for the she houses. Both because they weren't on earth for 600 years. And mm-hmm. because like the she's relationship with time and memory and their own history is kind of steeped in the mythic. Yep. So I was more okay with the arc of the history here. Yep. And I definitely get the impression, like, reading through this, that 
definitely you can tell the unreliable part of unreliable narrator is supposed to be here if you actually look through stuff because there's all these subtle differences in the same book with the same writer so i do suspect jackie wrote the intro fiction because yeah. it reads very much like the immortal eyes novels complete with scenes from arcadia and whatever so mm -hmm. anyway the history we get notes about elil and his sister elinid who we kind of saw this before in book of houses their kind of sibling mm -hmm. relationship how they were winter and summer but they seemed kind of more suited for the reverse like elo was a lot more charismatic and whatnot there's a moment where it says like this is the tale told by our lore keepers and then it gives you like no details it's like yep they were siblings then they split up <laughs> okay that was a mm -hmm. short tale um so the elil taught humans how to do intrigue and fostered loyalty among commoners and waged war for cattle yeah, well, they seemed sort of offhand said, yeah, there's a lot less fighting after us, like actual physical fighting. Yeah. That almost wasn't their goal. <laughs> yeah. I like how each of the houses here kind of has its own belief about how the Sundering came about. Mm -hmm. In the case of the Elil, they believe it's because the end of the trading off of seasonal rule, like the mm -hmm. winter and summer transition, that's what caused the Sundering to begin. Yeah. And they say that their goal is to restore the long upset balance of duality naturally with themselves in the leadership position during the winter. Yep. But that was a nice touch. Redcaps and Slua learned that Elil valued their contributions and accepted their less savory behavior. They ruled various fairy domains and mortal domains. Mm -hmm. They're a little bit Mary Sue-ish, I feel like. Like, all right, they're not top-notch warriors, maybe, but everything else they seem pretty much capable. Uh, it's all written by them for them, though. That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think that's one of the... That's fair. Do you take all these as self there's a bias definitely aggrandizement and i think, and yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. fits a little because uh, that's what they'll do <laughs> that's one of the big things about them yeah oh and then there's the sidebar on the taint to hell yeah the tie of, of sacrificing some of their own yeah, and this is a little bit different it's not like to establish arcadia this is to allow for the bright road to reincarnate so that she can reincarnate through the land of the dead right just like the changeling way yeah but right. it'd be like you're a full fey and then you die and then you come back as a full fey after a bit i think was the it would be interesting to see like assuming that there are different ways that changelings undertook the changeling way yeah. if there was actually some group that did make pacts with demons in order to start reincarnating but yeah but this is something that i've seen before for the she at least believing that yeah they Nothing to do with changelings or being part human. They still reincarnated before. So. Yeah. They definitely hammer on the bright road a lot in this book. It's very much Shadow Court 2 mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So, importantly, during the Shattering, Elil himself did not go to Arcadia, we are told. Yep. And the commoners who were left behind in the Interregnum took up the house's reins. A few lingering she may have left behind some Kinane descendants who have a gift for intrigue. So I like that idea. I'm wondering from these book of houses if like any house founder <laughs> to Arcadia. I can't remember because there was a bunch of the other Sealy ones where the, the like the founder was the only one who stayed behind. Or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Leona didn't, but we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. A lot of this also fits with the fact that Elila is actually the first unsealy house we ever saw because we had Italian back in the Immortalized trilogy. So if there was going to be a house which the majority of Kithane would know about mm -hmm. it would be them, I guess, because it seems like they schmoozed with the commoners to kind of get them into their web and they had some representatives left on earth. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, they're kind of like the first rumblings of the Sabbat and Vampire or something. Where it was like not in this book, yeah. but, but Shadow Court they had it. But like, yeah, they have strong the Sombra vibes too. I mean, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> like I get to that. Like... The church influence and the state influence and the nation building and and also pirates and buccaneers, yeah. the dark <laughs> so... leaders mm-hmm. of the Gwydion, which have the Venger sort of. If the Elil are the La Sombra, then the Balor are the, are the Samisi, and the Leonin are the Toridor Antitribu. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they don't really know what happened to them while they were in Arcadia. They do know that any of them that were left behind were all gone when they came back during the resurgence. They suspect they might have had something to do with Machiavelli. But... Yeah, because there were some Elil, sort of the commoner Kiths members of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keeping the faith, as it were. Mm-hmm. So when they came back, uh, they primarily ended up in places like Ulster and Chicago and Washington, D.C. and Prague, all of which were having sort of tense political moments at the time. Mm-hmm. But they weren't much involved in the Accordance War from the way this book tells it. And I do like how all three of them repeatedly point to the Sealy as the orchestrators of the Night of Iron Knives and like, ha, huh, hypocrites. I mean, they were the orchestrators of the Night of Iron They were, yeah. yeah. They just never admit it, so. Yep. Not all Sealy. Yeah. <laughs> so the Elil certainly, even though they didn't necessarily participate in the Accordance War, they certainly took advantage of it. They did their best to make commoners even more jaded about the Sealy. So uh, now they have another opportunity with David's disappearance, and they're pretty stoked about that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's their history. Yep. So yeah, they're gets to the ways of the house Alil. They don't know what happened to Alil. Hope he's still around somewhere, but probably not. How mysterious. And it's High Lord Erdath. Yes. They seem like the ones who, well, it actually says here, they differ the least from the Seelie houses. And my read on that is they just follow the title hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So like dukes outrank, counts outrank, barons outrank. Right? Yep. They have a paucity of freeholds, the locations of which they generally hide to prevent invasion by, in particular, House Gwydion. And they have a lot of non-landed nobility, non-landed gentry. Yep, because the Seelys took all the freeholds, mm-hmm. so. especially in Concordia. Although a little bit confused as to why they think they had any freeholds in Concordia, but anyway. <laughs> Maybe there were some of those commoner nobles who had some. Well, there's also the note that some of them came over in the 12th century or whatever, yeah. so <laughs> we're back to that again. Although this, this also could just be they looked around and went, well, we don't have any here. That must be they stole them. <laughs> yeah. Where's our freehold? They generally are meritocratic, I would say, mm-hmm. but also seen as arrogant. They emphasize finesse and wisdom and boldness. Their fostering's brutal. Like, reminds me of some of the stories of, like, Spartans and stuff. Like, it's... It's not as bad as the Balor one. <laughs> no, but they're intentionally given like so many impossible rules to follow. And if they're caught not doing it or caught like rebelling or whatever, they're punished severely. And the whole thing is to teach them basically how to lie and hide that they're getting and cheating to get someone else to do it. Which Break was... the rules without getting caught. Yep. Yeah. But if you make it through, the seining is apparently a combination of wild revel and black tie ball. Mm-hmm. Plus the naming by the ritualists of the shadow court if they are part of the shadow court and then they have a trial by ordeal as the fury because mm. why not although they usually have to cheat or deceive or trick someone to succeed they have a whole bunch of oaths yeah to their house all of the houses in here do and i'm yep. so here for it so we have the oath of membership 
when those born into Elil pass their fiori. The oath of adoption, which is when another houses she or a commoner enters. And this oath gives you a permanent point of glamour. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah, oath of loyal opposition, where if you want to be seely, you have to swear this other oath. Like yeah, loyal one. opposition is a fun. <laughs> yeah, so, so if you're Seely, you got to swear that one. And then the Oath of the Forsworn, yeah. where if you're an Oathbreaker, it removes all the penalties of being an Oathbreaker, but now you have the penalties of following the Oath of being of the Forsworn, which is like everyone knows you're an Oathbreaker and doesn't trust you. Yeah, but given some of those other Oath penalties, this is probably mm -hmm. fine for a lot of them. Oh, man, there could be a ton of trolls who are like, um, I'm going to die. I guess I'll go... <laughs> Yeah. Or you're really messed up. I'm going to go join Allele and become one of the sports one. Yeah. But they do note that they're firm believers in oaths because it's kind of the pinnacle of their take on honor as being this individualized thing. Mm -hmm. And I dig that. They don't enter them lightly and they rarely take them. But when they mm -hmm. do, they mean it. Yep. I guess it's kind of like Pukun speaking truthfully the oaths, right? Like, For like, sure. This is a big deal. This is not like casual conversation or whatever. It is 93% the same. And we get to their description of this, the unseelie code, which... Change is good. Yep. They seem to think a passion for change drives their love of politics, because politics is constantly in flux, and so is the universe. Therefore, one thing is like the other. For glamour is free, they think politics can be a source of glamour just as much as art and technology, of which they favor the more modern types. Honor is very much an individual thing. And then passion before duty, they say, like honor, duty means nothing unless driven by personal desire, mm -hmm. which is an interesting take, I suppose. And then they actually seem to have some weird take on the Sealy Code. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is the few members of the house, but it seems like the take is the kind that even the unsealy might be okay with if they thought it believed that, but meant that. Yeah, they respect the Sealy for their courage to swim against the current, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They agree that sometimes death is necessary to fulfill personal honor. Mm -hmm. Love can be a weapon. So it can, indeed, conquer all. Beauty can include things that are ugly or distressing. And deaths and fairness are important for appearances and reputation. So that you can coerce commoners and others into your machination. Mm -hmm. So the other houses have kind of a dive into the shadow court tenets as well. And we don't get that here. Mm -hmm. yep. And they have their secret societies, which I think every chapter here calls them out as not being actually secret at least within the house it does say secret in quotes yeah <laughs> these secret society at least all of the house knows about them of which we have three mm -hmm. guardians of the silver dragon which are just like allele red branch equivalents the knights les amoureux the enamored the courtesans yep and disinherited the ones who swear the oath of forsworn and they think that's cool i guess yeah <laughs> They're almost like Suicide Squad, I feel. It says they volunteer for dangerous missions, claiming that since they've lost their mm -hmm. honor, they have nothing more to lose. So, yeah. And then they admit participation in the Shadow Court, and that's about it. Although this description of the Shadow Court could have been like the sort of fake Shadow Court. It's a bit unclear mm. what it's supposed to be. Yeah. They just say, like, we're the undisputed leaders, and then don't go into any detail. But... And then they go to their interpretations of the Ashit. Which must be adapted to the times, they point out. Mm -hmm. Although, quite frankly, they seem to generally follow it actually <laughs> yeah for the right of domain in their opinion it doesn't apply to the stolen alil freeholds so they don't recognize the rights of the usurpers mm -hmm. right to dream and this is more like well nightmares are kind of dream <laughs> yeah they seem to feel it's unfair to those who know how to ravage properly like mm -hmm. 
they agree that changelings shouldn't run around ravaging mortals willy-nilly, but they're like, no, no, if you know yeah. how to do it, it's fine. I, I'd also feel like this would actually make a little bit more sense with the what we have in the C20 player's guide with the like dark musing stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like they're not really talking about ravaging here. They're talking yeah. about... For the right of ignorance, they, I guess, push the envelope. It says that telling a member of our house that something is forbidden her almost always ensures that she will test the will of the one who forbids it. So it's, yeah. yeah, she may not openly reveal herself completely to mortals, but she'll just like, yeah, here and there. It seems like they, they sort of follow it about as much as the Seely houses do. Yeah. But they're, they're more open about it. There's a lot of that yeah. here. It's like, probably the average Aaliyah and the average Gwydion aren't that different in how much they're following this, but... Just don't tell them. No. Well, they would say that about the, the Seely houses as being hypocrites. <laughs> so. A lot. Yep. Uh, right of Rescue... Rescue and safe haven, they seem to have kind of a jaded but pragmatic approach. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we'll rescue you, but you're going to owe us. Yeah. Yeah, right of life is probably the one they follow the least, because they're like, you know, assassinations are sometimes necessary. But, you know. <laughs> Minimum necessary force, they say. Yes. But, I mean, Concordia has executions, so. <sighs> and they accept the consequences of their actions. Mm-hmm. Throughout this whole discussion, they keep pointing out silly hypocrisy, and they seem like personally stung by it. Which is an interesting kind of motivation mm-hmm. for the villains. So mm-hmm. then we get some politics. Their primary goal being to simply increase unseelie representation by any means necessary, followed by learning to survive with less glamour and outlasting rather than overthrowing their enemies. Mm-hmm. We get some different political impulses and what they follow. This or, is from the Shadow Court book, I think, these impulses. Yes. Well, they're in the Shadow Court book, but they're presented as the general unseelie impulses as a counterpoint mm-hmm. to the seelie ones in Nobles the Shining House. Yep. So among the Elil, there are the purists, which are the majority, who seek to restore the twin courts of seelie and unseelie rule. But there are a number of repudiators who feel that, well, the Seely commoners were running things here for 600 years, more or less. Let's have 600 years of unseelie rule. And there are ritualists who are deep in the shadow court stuff, the modernists who want equal rights for unseelie commoners, and not many anarchists just because most of them think it's pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Like, how can you be a subtle manipulator if you're just running around trying to burn everything down? And then they talk about the Seely ones who are really not that different from the unseelie <laughs> ones when you get down to it. As long as they're loyal. Yep. And we'd like to claim credit for abducting the High King David, but uh, nope, it wasn't us. I love how every house is both so open about having nothing to do with it, and yet so gleeful at taking advantage of the situation. Mm-hmm. And then we get some, eh, merits and flaws. They're not bad, but they're not. Yeah. There's like the good, gifted liar, guileless, bad at lying. <laughs> bad liar. <laughs> and then forsworn. You sworn the forsworn oath thing. Everyone thinks you're a liar. Yeah. Yeah, I wish they had a little more variety. But at least it's on the note. Like, it's not, there's nothing you go, what? I wouldn't allow that in my game. I feel like Forsworn, I don't know, it doesn't seem severe enough for a three-point flaw, but. Oh, I don't know. Maybe we, maybe it's the type of games I've run and stuff, but like, being seen as an Oathbreaker is a pretty big deal. I guess so, but that's not encoded in the mechanics of the flaw. It's just a plus two difficulty to social mm. roles when you're trying to persuade people you're sincere or telling the truth. Yeah. But on top of that, you're also an oathbreaker. Yeah, well, then there should be more weight to the flaw in that regard. Mm-hmm. I guess there's like other oathbreaker stuff in the games. So. Mm-hmm. And then we get so many opinions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so here begins the 12-page stereotypes portion. So let's very quickly go through these. <laughs> yeah. Baylor, 
They're basically red caps of 20 years. Don't trust them, <laughs> but they're useful distractions. Yeah. Dougal. They're like knockers with point, with the pretty. Dower lackeys of the Gwydion. Elinid. We really wish they'd come back into our fold. Like, this reads yeah. like they're Lestat talking about Louis or something. Like. They, yeah, they have the closest relationship, and they're like, yeah, if we have to share power with someone in the future, it's going to be them. Mm-hmm. But the Elinid have to come back to our fold. Like, they're too being too. Uh... Yeah. Fiona are tawdry, but fun, and easily manipulated. Gwydion, they're our enemy. The enemy. The Falcon's brood despises our house in particular. They want us dead. And they keep talking about how, like, everyone, like, the Gwydion want them all killed. Publicly yep. said this. Although, I don't think King David's allowed that. I'm thinking Duke Dre. Yeah. Uh, Leonin, consummate seducers, tragic lovers. They also seem to know all about the curse. Yep. A recurring theme is like every time more people seem to know all the ins and outs of the Leonin curse, I'm like, why are they even bothering to try and keep it a secret? Well, no, I think it's, it is a rumor among the Sealy establishment, but not one that's considered substantiated. Like I suppose. The Elil at least certainly seem to know. They're like, we see through their ruse. Yeah, the Elil, the Elin, and the Baylor know. Oh, great. None of them are going to like tell the Gwydion. Or... I guess that's true. They do acknowledge the Leonin are tougher than they look, though, which is nice. And then the Liam, who are sort of repulsively seely, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. It does clearly state through this section, though, that houses in general have members from both courts, which I think is a good mm-hmm. note to reinforce. Yeah, and they do. They do basically talk about how they're actively trying to turn everybody, mm-hmm. like what techniques yeah, yeah, yeah. they use in general for each house. So then the commoners. They get titles because it's advantageous to the house, and they like feeding into their resentment of the Sealy who want to ignore their self-determination. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the Elil are just as snobbish as other she. There's these hints yeah. that they can be like violent towards their commoners. Callous, at the very least, violent in some cases. So I mean, they could be violent towards their other she too, actually. But... Yeah. So, Boggins, Sealy are blech, and Unsealy make good housekeepers slash spies. Mm-hmm. Ishu... Yeah, we kind of like these. They're an early warning system. Knockers is basically everyone non-Knockers' opinion of Knockers. Talented, though. Yeah. Puka, they actually have a pretty strong opinion of, good opinion of Puka in general. They like dropping them as little havoc bombs into (laughs) situations. But they'll sometimes use them as spies and messengers. Yeah. Yeah. Redcaps are the less nice version of Baylor She. Shock troops. Surprisingly loyal. The satyrs they seem to have the best relationship with, which I found interesting. Because mm-hmm. the at least unsealy satyrs are the most like themselves. They make good advisors mm-hmm. and good lovers and can get up to a fun time. So mm-hmm. This little author at least does not like the Skahawk, which in this edition were, at this yeah. point, were the only autumn she. Yeah, they're not even considered she, but they're more useful allies than Liam. Mm-hmm. So. And the Slua? Spies and assassins, of course. Mm-hmm. One of these days, I would love to see, especially it would have made sense, I think, for this house to be like, oh, yeah, that's our court necromancer, the Slua. But, mm-hmm. And I love how they try to trick the trolls into oaths so that they're loyal. <laughs> One thing about this section, I don't think I needed the notes on every single house and kith about how good they are in bed. Yeah. So that's a similarity with satyrs as well, I guess. Yeah, they're, they're actually, all three of these houses were, were kind of horny. Yeah, but especially this one. <laughs> yeah. Balor, Balor had a weirder thing where it was like, here's how they all taste. <laughs> I'm like, uh... Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, but yeah, it's like the Allele are more horny than the Leonhan. Yeah. <laughs> so then we get even more opinions. 
<laughs> all the phalanx we've had so far, which is like basically kind of like the kith that they're of, but like maybe avoid the. Yeah, they seem to not really care for the phalanx at all. I mean, they, but they have a, they have reasons for it, which I like. Mm-hmm. So the phalanx are horrific in their single mindedness, just as much as the Gwydion are on mm-hmm. the other end of the spectrum. And they really push the everyone can be useful idea because the Aelil are like, uh, can they though? But at the end of the day, loyalty is what matters. So Yeah, they seem like there's very limited uses, but those there's still yeah. uses for all of them. Yeah, beasties, attack dogs. Boggarts, not generally worth the trouble, just get some Antili Boggins. But maybe the Antili Boggins will use the Boggarts. Just... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bogies, good for dramatic killings. Goblins, good for dramatic killings. Ogres, guard dogs. And like that's the full extent of their yeah. usefulness. So Galane, where they consider Fomori Galane, which is interesting. Yes. But don't really know much what to do with them. They're like, yeah, go ask Balor. Mm-hmm. Anatomy, which they're also like, we don't understand the anatomy. Nunye, see anatomy. <laughs> yep. Also, lost ones, scary. Also, nymphs are yes. its own category. Separate, separate from anatomy, but basically the same kind of deal. Yep. And then more opinions on the Prodigals. Yep. Vampires are fun to hang out with, especially the Las Ombras. <laughs> Las Ombras. Yes, they exude dark glamour. Mm-hmm. Not exactly close with the Garou. They seem like they want to know more about ghosts and they want to hang out with necromancers. So, mm-hmm. But we don't get the note about their Nefandi sense, which I was disappointed about. The Dantain. They don't like the Dantain. Good. None of these like the Dantain. No. <laughs> But same opinion as uh, the Seelie. But they're worth observing from afar to learn banality mm-hmm. dynamics. Mm-hmm. And then mortals. Yeah, the problem was that she didn't take an active enough role in the mortal world. That's why the shattering happened. Yeah, not the sundering though. That was because the Seelie didn't give up power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they refer to themselves as face supremacists, which I'm like. Uh, but uh, in particular, their lovers almost always seem to get enchanted, but are not equals. Canadian dreamers are useful intermediaries, and autumn people should just be ignored and avoided. Mm-hmm. And then we get a nice little full-page blazon of the house on page 45. Mm-hmm. But that's like 12 full pages of opinions with like one piece of art thrown in. <laughs> yep. It's a lot of talking. And then we get famous and infamous Elil. Elil himself, who seems like a passionate diplomat and warrior with a inability to remain aloof from the world of mortals so i like the story hook idea that he might actually be a lost one somewhere in like a hill in western ireland mm-hmm. that could work then high lord erdath charismatic but slightly paranoid and in my head canon with all of the sort of like jockeying for power between lenore and morwen and Ferelith and the absence of david i want to see the universe where erdath stepped in and was like i'll take over then lady Victoria, which is actually from the Interregnum, a satyr. Courtesan extraordinaire. But then it becomes just like influential at the high Italian Renaissance and the politics. and The muse of Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. She's my favorite out of all of these. Same. I would love to see like a historical game centered around her. But someday. Then Slanya. Hey, she's the one telling this history. Mm-hmm. Like it's not this part because she's using third person. Yes. She does that sometimes. Count. Declan? What was Count Declan's full name? Because I gave it. Oh, I don't. It was it was hilarious when I read it. <laughs> yeah, this this book definitely plays into the whole. Oh, human names of she are just shortenings of elaborate long elvish names. Declaniel, yeah. that was it. And then Princess Jessamy, who's like a anime character, basically. <laughs> like a, 
Yeah. The future chosen child of the Shadow Court. Yeah, whatever. And then we get one template. I thought this template was okay. Roving reporter. I like the idea of a reporter as a role for a she. Mm -hmm. Although dexterity one, that's rough. Yeah. Not the kind of reporter I'd like as a reporter, but... No, no, no. But as a character, she works. Yes. That's that's the chapter. What are your thoughts? So overall, the story was long. The stereotype section was long. I think both of those could have been shortened a bit to give more space on their society and culture. But overall, Mm. I mean, you know, I I was into it. Yeah. I gave like a solid B, which is actually... (laughs) I'd, I'd even give it a b plus yeah there's nothing astounding but nothing terrible like it's useful it's yeah you know should, would i prefer the words be put towards a different topic maybe but that's not what happened so it's yeah then we turn the page house leonin by dreams afflicted mm-hmm. i don't know where to start with this um opening fiction <laughs> it's shorter certainly and we have another declan Who's a different Declan from the first Declan? I was confused by that. I was like, is this the same Declan? And it's getting really convoluted. And this Declan's pretending to be like a Gwydion now. And yeah, we have eight separate sections told from two, three points of view. I'm not sure in the course of like a page mm-hmm. and a bit, followed by like two other pieces of text that are letters from another person plus the first like it's just all over the place in terms of and and this whole and then the whole chapter is supposed to be basically a Leanna spilling everything right her gwydian love and i'm like what who she was supposed to kill yeah what <laughs> i guess it's a conceit of why we're getting the house history but i'm not sure because i can't read this font it's like a fake uh, calligraphy. And it also has the dashes turning into AE ligatures in the middle of it. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, then we get into the history. I will say, <laughs> moving past that, I think the chapter's quality is quite high. <laughs> well, if, by the way, if you get the latest PDF from DriveThru, and I'm not seeing the AEs, maybe it'll come up later, but ah. they may have fixed it. I'm glad it got fixed. Anyway, then we get into the history proper. And the history actually opens with another story which is more like those Kithbook opening parables that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. We learned that Leonin was the free-spirited youngest daughter of the Tuatha, which, okay. There's mm-hmm. a squicky piece where it says a whole bunch of suitors met to decide who'd educate her in love, which is like, oh, I'm getting Fiona vibes from this. But mm-hmm. the winner was a Liam Knight named Lady Finelia. And then we get the whole story of their courtship and relationship. Finelia taught her about dreamers. Leonin fell for and accidentally rhapsodized this mortal bard named Idan. Finelia had this really overdramatic reaction where she curses her lover and slays herself to make it stick. And that's where the house curse comes from. And that's where the house blazon comes from because it was the rhapsodized bard's harp and (laughs) the white rose that Leonin carried turned black with the curse. And it's all on the field of green that represents Ireland. So as a two-page story to sum up, like, all of those little trappings of the house, I was into it. Yeah, this is kind of like a kith history. Yeah. For house, but they're kind of a kithy house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did note with interest that Finelia kind of freaks out about this because she says it's forbidden to interfere in human death. I was like, oh, what's that all about? Yeah. But she says... I curse you with the decay of all you hold most dear. I strike from you your youth and beauty, your innocence and joy. May you become like that ancient crone who lay before you in the cottage, because the bard was playing for his dying mother. May you be cursed with eternal hunger. I mean, I mean, the forbidden thing might have just been her thing, too, because she's like Liam. 
whatever. Mm, yeah, that's true. It does feel a little bit pat, the explanation, but I guess that's what one has to do with myths. Well, when it's your story writing to give to yeah. you. If you're betraying your house in the story, <laughs> Fair. So then we get into the Sundering, and in this case, the Leonin chalk it up to a growing distrust between mortals and fae. That was interesting. Mm-hmm. And this is the point, so quite early on, quite deep in history, Leonin eventually decides that she can't bear to keep rhapsodizing. She just can't keep doing it to mortals, and she eventually ages. And because the she are immortal, she doesn't die, she gets mercy killed by her retainers. Yep. And a single rose remains pure on her corpse, which will become important later. Yep. And then the shattering happened, and they're like, oops, didn't expect yep. that. And... Did you notice that there was repeated mentions, or at least in the Leon and Abelor sections, where they keep talking about the shattering as, we had seconds to make a decision? Yes. I didn't remember that from before. <laughs> well, maybe they just really weren't paying attention. I guess so. But other ones were like, oh yes, we had the long ride to the gateway. Yeah, but I mean, there was the, the trods were closing, and if they didn't catch it, and they were like left with one trod left that was about to close. Yeah. And they're like, you gotta go now. Yep. So the Leonin had rather a dilemma when it came to the Shattering because they knew they needed mortal glamour to survive, but they couldn't mm-hmm. stay on Earth. So what do they do? And I seemed to recall references elsewhere to them taking a whole bunch of mortals with them, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really seem like that was the case here. Maybe they took some, but it's not really like high. Yeah, they said they, they ravaged other fae. Or no, sure not ravaged them. Um, you did the... The Rhapsody, the... Yeah. Rhapsody. Which, Which like, how does that work? That I did a triple take on that. So yeah. <laughs> I could see ravaging more than rhapsodying them. They already have glamour. Yeah. But anyway, the interregnum was not pleasant for them in while well, they were trapped in Arcadia, is they just kept aging for six hundred years very rapidly. It's like the myth of Tithonus. And then when they returned, so like some of the like the commoner kith that were members of the house stayed behind. I guess continuing to use Rhapsody. Somebody had to. Did you notice also with the Shattering piece when they mentioned the Black Death? I feel like we've discussed before how the Black Death is kind of pointed to without much explanation, but the way they present it mm-hmm. here, I kind of like where they say that the sudden horror of it forever tainted like the idea of purely surrendering to dreams of hope. Hmm. Mortals never again fully trusted that things would be okay. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, that actually, that's an interesting take on it. And I think if you mix it, like, none, all of them say, even this said they missed it, like, the shattering did not start with the Black Death. It's It was the yeah, yeah, yeah. straw, like, it was already happening when yeah. that hit, and it just broke everything. Maybe it was like, as soon as they knew someone had the plague, that was when they had seconds to decide what to do or something. Mm-hmm. But part of the appeal of the Liana to me, story-wise, is that they're kind of an example of what happens when theoretically good she are forced by circumstances to become really hard and to harden their hearts. It's what I kind of like from vampire stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and it's tragic. I do like vampire stories I like. Yeah. Yeah. And I also like how they treat the Arcadian amnesia as a blessing in counterpoint Mm -hmm. to most she. Yep. And then they were dragged, carried back by their retainers. Happily for Talking more about Arcadian non-she, which we still don't actually have any rules for in C20, (laughs) so... Little one here. Mm-hmm. They mention that the true face of Leon is that they survive, and they also make friends. Mm-hmm. So they worked those connections to come back. 
they suggest that because they all kind of came back to their homeland of Ireland, they weren't actually exiled. They chose to leave with the other exiles because they wanted to not be 600 years old. Mm -hmm. And they also believe that Arcadia is locked in winter as a mirror of how the autumn world was dominated by silly commoners. No, I was wrong. I'm seeing the AE literature. (laughs) Mark here. Surprise. (laughs) I do like the sort of nested mirror world political conspiracy theory stuff here. Like the idea that Arcadia and the autumn world are mirrors of each other in terms of what's happening with like silly unsealy balance. I wish we got more of that philosophy. Mm-hmm. Accordance war was all the Seelys fault. The Leonin declared themselves neutral and made friends. They reopened freeholds that only the she could open. And so they're pretty popular nowadays with the commoners, especially because they procure dreamers. So, mm-hmm. and they seek to gain enough glamour to sustain themselves at any cost. So at this point, was it every week or every month they needed to do a rhapsody? Second edition, it had become every month. Okay. Or it was, I think it was after the first month, every week past, they would age a year. And they believe that endless winter on Earth will break their curse, because then if it's endless winter on Earth, it'll be endless summer in Arcadia, and that's where it matters. If they were right, maybe I'd see their point, but they seem to be basing this on very <laughs> sketchy. But that, I mean, that's what I love about it. It's like the desperate rabbit hole of conspiracy yeah. theory, she style. Yep. It's like a, a deep dive into cyclical metaphysics. I'm mm-hmm. I'm here for it. But anyway, that's their history. They talk about something called the Great Pageant, which we will get to shortly. Mm-hmm. And they have the special art of ravaging, which is actually about rhapsody. Yes. It's not the same thing as ravaging at all. I don't know. It has nice notes here, though. They, they almost have their own little code for how they do it. It says they do it solo, more like reverie mm-hmm. than anything else. And their tenets are that they choose mortals who crave their attention. They give unconditionally to support the mortal because that'll give them more glamour in the end. But then ultimately, they can't afford to truly regret what they do because they have mm-hmm. to do it. Not just mortals to seek them out. They need to, at least on some level, make sure the mortal knows what they're getting into. Like, you will do something great. And that's it. This will be the last great thing you do. Yeah. But they also believe that this careful approach is what makes Rhapsody more potent for them than for others. So it can reverse their aging, which is like, yeah, that's not happening for anybody else. Mm-hmm. Although it would be nice to have some more sort of intricate mechanics around this. Well, I think it works with the current mechanics following this. Yeah, I just, I wish there was like more. <laughs> more about the process or something then we get to their society outside of hibernia they're pretty scattered but their freeholds Mm -hmm. tend to be havens for the disaffected renowned for taste and elegance and following along their whole vampire thing they don't tend to like each other very much but they stick together for mutual aid and necessity it's competition for resources Mm -hmm. yeah their whole culture is sort of centered on seduction and artistry and grace yeah they're, they're very toreador yeah i think that's why i adore them so much (laughs) they're like more interesting story door to me privately they prepare for endless winter i mean that's what unites them is their purpose more than friendship or personal loyalty it's their purpose and their temperament it's the endless winter preparing but there's also the day-to-day existence helping each other yeah helping each other i don't know (laughs) well no they have that explicitly it's hard to find dreamers if you're burning through them like that so they have mutual support on that I think they manage each other. Mm-hmm. I think they keep each other honest. Sorry. Helping. <laughs> so. It's an alliance helping. It's not a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not out of friendship. No. But they're friends with everybody else, so... Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a sign of respect that they're not your friend. <laughs> Organizationally, we have High Lord Eleanor. And I like that she's High Lord and not High Lady. Mm-hmm. And then the 
high council followed by the ruling councils who are like regional i guess they get a lot of councils a lot of like positions on yeah. councils and advisors which makes you wonder how many there are ah <laughs> uh, a lot yeah i think by number of like 0.1% of what you think of as mortals are actually changelings in some way must is like the... yeah and then among their many advisors they have the rose and the harp who are treasure keepers that we'll get to later bards and revel masters who they say make good spies historians and teachers knights noble commoners lots of friends and even though they are very hierarchical they value opinions at all levels so i think that's part of their appeal to commoners is that your voice is more likely to be heard by them yeah they seem to generally be like even if somebody's like you know an enchanted mortal might say say and be like oh that's a good point we should like they'll listen to everybody yeah and if somebody doesn't follow your advice you can always appeal their decision by challenging them to a duel in, depending on certain things about rank and yes. stuff yeah then the oaths these are the ones that don't have mechanics or mechanical benefits from them. But the Oath of Joining, mm-hmm. which is when you properly join the house. Oh, yeah, Oath of Joining is only for Shi of other houses. Okay, yeah. Oath of Majority is what happens when you fully join the house, I guess. So it's like either you did your seining or... They mentioned that you do one oath after the other. So I think you do the Oath of Joining and you get the boon and the ban. And then you take the Oath of Majority, which binds you to secrecy about the nature of the curse. Oath of adoption when you're either... A commoner. <laughs> yeah, a commoner. Oath of majority. Binding them to secrecy. But then there's the oath of mutual support that everyone does after they do the oath of majority. I don't know if all of them do. <laughs> but maybe, yeah. And oath of service, you can agree to serve them. It's fealty without the privileges or drawbacks. Mm-hmm. And the pledge of binding for mortals. So there's a lot of oaths. Mm-hmm. All of which I think the Liam are forbidden from. I feel like there's a note in there somewhere. They really hate the Liam. <laughs> Well, Liam first them. It's true. Liam hates them more, so... So then we get the courts. Most of the Unsealy ones are also aligned with the Shadow Court, but some of them do want to keep the world turning and preserve dreamers, which helps them appear Sealy in Sealy jurisdictions. The actual Sealy Leonin are fooling themselves into thinking they can overcome their curse with good behavior, or they just refuse to rhapsodize and allow themselves to age, and some other Leonin just kind of hunt them down. <laughs> they are the brains of the Shadow Court, and have heavy representation among its ritualists. Valor is the muscle, Elil is the charm and the rulership, but they are the backbone. Yeah, the great ritual sidebar is like, whoa. Yeah, so this took a turn. This is like the um, Giovanni ritual where they want to tear down the shroud by like sacrificing 50 million souls or whatever. So the idea is that by sacrificing a bunch of Sealy childlings and the majority of dreamers in the world, they will bring about Endless Winter, which they've convinced themselves is in their best interests as well as the Earth's slash Arcadia's. So yeah, here's where the slime trickles out. Mm -hmm. If we must destroy the Earth or lock it in ice for centuries to free Arcadia and revitalize the dreaming, we will. Tough talk from House Leonin. Mm -hmm. Then we get to secret societies. Again, not secret. The so-called secret societies. Yeah. And they have their own knights that are the military. Who are the closest to the Sealy, Sealy Code. There's the Midnight Pact, who are assassins and judges, fanatical knights. And then the Finders, which is like, oh boy, do the Leon need those. Yep. They find you dreamers. Procurement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the revisionists who do kind of propaganda and espionage to mostly mess with the Sealy, but also keep up the name of Leon. Yep. 
keepers of the rose who protect the house's treasures and seek out new ones and they hoard and investigate glamour eternal order of dreams was kind of creepy and a good story hook yeah. dreamer kidnappers to take them to the dreaming and then manage them and then fall to bedlam as they're spending too much time in the dreaming for later snacking mm -hmm. but they have the chronos cages yeah which nowadays maybe they'd be using maybe in c20 they'd be using winter five sometimes too but yeah they're very cold chronos cages and mm. then the inquiry who deal with prodigals mm. i get their take on the unsealy code yes change is imperative glamour will always be available but isn't to be wasted mm -hmm. honesty is more important than artificial so-called honor and passion is their duty passion is also different than feeling alive mm -hmm. so and then this take on the Sealy code where they're like we wish this was true especially the love conquers all they're like yeah that would be nice <laughs> yeah death before dishonor oh we have to do too many dishonorable things to fully count that uh, and also they know they're dying pretty quickly yeah beauty is life they do stick to life depends on beauty in their case mm -hmm. or artistry at least and never forget a debt we don't forget our debts to we are more to our dreamers than we could ever repay i did like the note that they take care of the families of the dreamers that they rhapsodize i thought that was a nice yeah. touch and then the shadow court tenants they do understand the mortal world like the toreador Mm -hmm. They just, they keep up with mortals. So. They reach out to prodigals for knowledge's sake rather than alliances. Mm -hmm. I like that they have this kind of comparative eschatology thing going on where they're like, oh, these prodigals, they all seem to have these kind of apocalypse things going on too. <laughs> hmm. Maybe there's something to this. Yeah. Preparing for endless winter is their whole thing. And overthrowing the Sealy is just a means to that end, though they'd rather yeah. do it bloodlessly. Yeah. Uh... Fulfill the ritual obligations of the year coming in Sawain, and they're like, eh, some of us do it, but it's not as big a deal. In Chaos, meh. They like to let their hair down once in a while, but mm -hmm. there's some fun options, at least. They mention motorcycle jousts and duels on the top of skyscrapers. And then the Ashit. Although we usually act in the letter of the law, so to speak, we only do so as long as other Kithane hold our rights to those same protections. Yep. But they kind of like these rules. Yeah. They believe in the right to dream. What about their right to being rhapsodized? Well, it's like they think it's hypocritical to rank different types of epiphany. And they're like, yeah, yeah reverie is not really any better or worse than rhapsody. And I think the tone deafness of the Leonin actually comes through really strongly there, which is good. Yeah, they're not big on ravaging, though. No, like. no, no. Ravaging is crass. Yeah. Crude. Ignorance is born out of fear of mortals. So the Leonin like to flaunt their sheeness when they feel like it. This is one of the uses of the word lickspittle. I think there's multiple. <laughs> oh, domain too. They also, they wish they had more freeholds, but who doesn't? Mm -hmm. Right of rescue, very important. Likewise, the right of safe haven. And both of them are connected with that culture of debts and repayment. And the right of light. Unlike the Sealy she, we follow this. <laughs> Except in cases of self-defense. Yep. Or I guess if you're a member of that one society. Yeah, it's a general house thing, not every member. Well, they, they say here, too, that the perception of other houses, of the Leonin as weakling ravagers, encourages others to murder them. So they're like, well, we should, you know, we're, we're allowed to defend ourselves, and that's where assassins come from. Mm -hmm. and I don't remember any other house saying, we're going to go around killing all the Leonin, so. Yeah. yeah, but I think there was, we should kill all the unseely she, or all the unseely is a thing that's Jonathan Sound doesn't change in books. So. Fair point. Duke Trey. It's really just him. Um, fosterage is almost an entirely in-house affair for mm -hmm. probably obvious reasons. 
The fewer is interesting because they kind of see themselves as living their trial. They're like, yeah, we don't need to have like a ritual mm-hmm. for it. Being one of us is trial enough. And they say it's like if they have to go through a fewer, let's just do one where we have to withstand pain or something like that. We're good at that. Yeah. They are uniting around their politics of preparing for the great ritual, binding as many Kithane mm-hmm. to their will as they can, and stopping foes from discovering their plans. Then we get some opinion. <laughs> Fortunately, sh- fewer pages of opinions than in the previous chapter. Yep. Allele. Well, Allele, the Allele like to think they're in charge. Baylor are a bunch of, well, red caps, basically. Useful warriors. Yep. I like the Dougal as plotters rather than plotters. Mm-hmm. How they ever became noble is beyond me. Elanid is... Uh... They're the ones who know the secret about the curse. Yep, but they're also like, oh my goodness, you're you're doing this whole schemes within schemes too far. You're just t- tangling yourself up. Yep. Ah, uh, the Fiona. Their f- passions are like ours, except they think they have it hard. They have no idea. And they're fickle. Yep. We stick with our mortals to the very end. Just that's a lot faster. Yeah. For the Fiona. <laughs> Generally, yes. Gwydion, mutual disgust. Nobody in this book likes Gwydion. Well, Gwydion doesn't like any of them. (laughs) Liam, also mutual disgust amplified by mutual hatred. Mm -hmm. And Skaha, they're actively supportive of. They're like, yeah, they're she. They're awesome. They're nobles. But that's pragmatic more than anything else, I would say. And then the commoners. We like commoners. They're very useful. Yeah. But they're treated rather fairly, which makes them more loyal to Leon and then probably a lot of other Unsealy houses. Yeah, they seem to have the better opinion of the it's like there's House Leonin, and then there's everybody else. Yeah. And everybody else is kind of on equal footing. <laughs> the Boggins are good for secrets, but be careful with your own around them. Mm-hmm. Ishu are good as spies, or for spreading propaganda, or procuring dreamers. Knockers, they're hard to like. Most they never look beyond the foul mouths and technical abilities of these Kithane. Neither do we. Then again, should we? Yeah. Damn, Leonin. Puka, also good for spies and propaganda. Red caps, shock troops to keep at arm's length. Most of these are very similar to the Elil ones, I think. Mm-hmm. Although they're both manipulative houses. So, That's uh, true. Manipulative unseely houses, so it's not surprising. Well, when they were talking about the other houses, a lot of their discussion revolved around like how to deal with them with respect to their plans for the Great Ritual and the Endless Winter. Mm-hmm. Whereas the commoners, it's more like, here's how they're useful from a political point of view. Well, they're not treating the kiths as political entities so much as beings with certain commonalities, which is kind of how it works. Like, yeah, for, there's, there's no Slua hierarchy of orders for the Slua command. Well, that they know yeah. about, at least. Yes. There's no Seder high command that anybody knows about, including the Seder, So, Well, the Seders are good for a tryst mm. or for digging up lore. Also, they like their drama yeah. and music and stuff. They like their art stuff. The sacred art of drama. Mm-hmm. Slua are good for information brokers and trolls. Trolls are interesting because they specify that they must be won over to the Leonin cause in order to convince other commoners. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, they seem to have good things to say about trolls. Yeah, and the, the Slua, their main concern is just the Slua will figure out what the heck they're doing. Yeah. They can't have that. So it's like they respect a lot of these commoners. They're just scared. That's part of why they're afraid of some of them. They have no patience for Thalane. They're indifferent to Galane, but they will always leave Cluricon dreamers untouched. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Careful contact with vampires. Basically nothing with werewolves. Mages! They show a surprising interest in marauders. Mm-hmm. I like them. <laughs> Yet a third group wants us to help them reshape reality so that we can all live on Earth more comfortably. That sounds quite promising to me. Yeah. Just because everyone else thinks they're mad doesn't mean we think that. I really want the Leon and Marauder team up game. 
That is an idea. Yes. Oh my god, rhapsodizing a marauder. Yeah, rhapsodizing pages in general, I'm like, how does that feel? <laughs> they shun shades. They remind us of the artists they've consumed, which is quite interesting. I don't know if they actually point out wraiths who are the mortals that they've rhapsodized. Like, I don't know if that ever comes up, but that would be interesting. And there's more of the Bright Road stuff here again. Mm -hmm. And then for all to talk about their affinity with mortals, there's just not much about them. You'd think there would be more about, like, here's when we enchant mortals. Here's... Mm. They did have a bunch of that beforehand, but... I guess so. It's just weird that there's just this very vague paragraph. It's like, we interact with mortals even more than with other fae, and yet they get, like, very little space here. Anyway, then the big names. Yeah, so you get their High Lord Eleanor. She deliberately aged herself faster for political guile purposes? Well, to deceive her enemies. I don't know that she deliberately Mm -hmm. aged herself, but she didn't run around trying to stave it off Mm -hmm. quite as much. She's respected by commoners, she's charismatic, she has her finger on the pulse of all cultural things in Concordia. She's my favorite. Is she in Cath Cradle? She might be. I could see, like, Meryl Streep playing her. That's who I envision. And there's Tyrngrim, who's her champion slash lover. And people make jokes about how much younger he is than she is. Yeah. And his dreamers are Olympic hopefuls in fencing. <laughs> that would be an interesting rhapsody. Yes. There's Sir Strallach, captain of the Knight's Protector. Very polite, also an assassin. Seems to follow the chivalrous silly code. But uh, he's actually one of the most sinister members of the Shadow Court. Mm-hmm. And Lady Gentian, the issue adopted into the house as chief spy. She's pretty cool too, but the thing is, like, I feel like these generally don't have much dimension to them. Like, Eleanor is complex and interesting, and the rest are just like, mm-hmm. here's her bodyguard, here's the captain guy, here's the yeah. spy lady. The end. Mm-hmm. They get their treasures, which these are cool. These are yes, you've already mentioned they're politically relevant to the house. Yes. So there's the Rose of Leonin, which was the one laid on their founders rest at her death and the holder of it can was it spend willpower to not need to rhapsodize actually this is funny they have treasures which are actually the positions using the forbidden treasures hmm. so yeah each of the treasures is held by a person chosen at the yearly convocation who temporarily gives up their name and assumes the title which is the same as the name of the treasure so the mm-hmm. rose holds the rose of Leona. the harp holds idan's harp the crown holds the crown of dreams. Yeah. So the rose is a female Leonin who wins the tournament requiring feats of arms, demonstrations of artistic merit, clever thinking, and grasp of house politics and needs, and becomes the guardian of the rose until the next tournament. Although the current holder has held it for 12 years, which people are mm-hmm. like, what's going on? And then Idan's harp is, it's a magic harp. It can evoke emotions, it can grant glamour, it can restore lost fae, and it goes to an enchanted male dreamer who in this case was a guy who thought he was competing in a music festival, but for the past three years has been the Rose's lover and confidant. Yep. And keeps winning his own challenges. Yes. But he's only three years in. She's 12 years in. And then the crown of dreams is not a crown, but a cloak pin that looks like a crown. Mm -hmm. And it can determine the best way to unlock a dreamer's potential. It always goes to a commoner, who's currently a male satyr. The prior crown, a female knocker, now holds a minor title and a small freehold of her own. Good for her. So... Yeah, and the actual stats for these treasures, Leonhan's like, you touch it once a week, you don't have to do Rhapsody. The harp can give you glamour or send you into Bedlam. <laughs> yeah, it also bring back Fae who've lost to themselves. And... Once per full moon. And the crown of dreams. This gives you some dreamer, Kenny. Some dreamer awareness about their potential and who's nearby. 
I'm not sure mechanically this actually works differently than the. I guess maybe it works a bit better than the standard rules, but. I mean, all dreamers within a square mile, depending where you are, can be pretty potent. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then we get the Kronos cages. Cells that stop time. Or at least slow it down. Uh, yeah. An exceedingly slow rate. And then we get some uh, quote unquote handwritten things of difficult to read font. Yep. The suggestion is here that the Leonin assassin lady spilling her guts to the Gwydion she randomly fell in love with for reasons unclear has decided not to rhapsodize anymore and has been getting older and older as she's writing this text yep. and her signature like trails off because she collapses at the end. Yep. And it's like, all right, this was clunky and I didn't need it, but sure. Mm -hmm. And we get a character template, which is, well, that's kind of horrific. They mentioned this before. House Leonin basically start out with their flaw even if they haven't gone through their chrysalis yet i don't know that that's necessary <laughs> yeah that one was a bit it's like you had this aging issue i mean maybe it's like sometimes happens as a thing but like well progeria it's a condition yeah. but i don't know that it needs to be the case yeah like again i could see it as like a occasionally that happens i don't think it should be like all of them that doesn't really make sense to yeah me, but I mean, it's part of the thing of like, oh, yeah, your kiss might have effects on your mortal form. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. I found this template, frankly, quite boring. Um, yep. It's like they're a finder. That's it. That's their whole character. Well, these templates, I still use, I mean, we've talked about how, like, are these templates supposed to be for PCs? Like, I find them still, like, this is still usable for, like, random NPC I need to shoot for. I need a finder. Here we go. I can fill in details. The dots are all off, though, too. Again, another reason to say not for PCs. Yeah. But everything between the story chunk at the start and the one at the end, I quite like. Yeah. And then we get the picture for coming into House Baylor. I do love his art. I'm not sure where that snake's coming from. A very short story to open again. Yeah. Pretty direct. Baylor lady kidnaps a, what is he, Dougal? Yeah. Yep. We're thinking that she's a related Dougal, but no, she's Baylor. It's like, oh, I'm your cousin. Just kidding. Now I've kidnapped you. Which I love is like, that was our great deceiving thing. I pretended to be his cousin. Yeah. So then listeners take note, this book carries a curse upon it. So if you listen to our discussion of this, I guess you won't burst into flames the way this uh, mm -hmm. suggests you will. But I'm um, a cooling fan of my, my laptop's working right now. So. so right from the start here, the sort of megalomania of the house is on full display, firing yeah. on all cylinders. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, it's it's fine i don't hate it i'm like yeah. it's them that's who they are it's just not something that i would choose to play as a character personally but yeah yeah well no there there's a very specific time when i in my grab bag of npcs for a game at least it's fun <laughs> they're just sometimes too mustache twirly for me yeah you know I like tragic and interesting villains and not these but, but I like, like how they think they're more capable of villainy than they are that, that I don't well like. I suppose yeah and they have this long story of where they come from and it's like I feel like they picked up a book on like the Ulster cycle or something and then tried to it's the book of invasions sorry the book of invasions and tried to make it fit their memories as opposed to this is their actual memories yeah, if well, you read it, you're like, some of this doesn't quite make sense with the other things you're saying or perceiving, so. Yeah. I mean, it is a pretty direct, like, all of these events, with maybe one or two exceptions, are, I believe, in the Book of Invasions. Mm -hmm. So, the fundamental part of it is they claim descent from the Fomorians, and they ruled over the Firbolg, who I think this might be the first mention we get of them. Mm -hmm. Maybe they were mentioned elsewhere. Then the Tuatha Dananan and their children are the usurpers. 
their king Balor fought the Tuathan king Nuada, etc., etc. Go read the Book of Invasions. It's all the same thing. Yeah. The only thing I take issue with is I thought that Lu killed Balor with a sling stone, but I guess it might have also been a spear in some tellings. Yeah, from looking into that, there is a bunch of different tellings, but also maybe the spear thing's like one of the things actually from their memories. He, he did have a spear in the book. Yeah. Like Lu did have the, yeah. oh, the okay. hissing spear, but I thought he had put out the eye of his grandfather with a sling stone. Mm-hmm. Talo, as it was called. Mm-hmm. In this house's telling, the sundering began when Balor fell because he was the figure of nightmare on earth. So once he was dead, the worlds began to split apart. And I actually do really like that idea. Yeah. One thing I've actually realized, the Fae kind of agree on what the, sh- the shattering is. Mm-hmm. It's quite possible that they all call what the sundering were actually different events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. So they became a house during the sundering, ruled by one of Lu's sons intermarried with the she there's this implication that they're metaphysically different somehow mm-hmm. like because of that femorian descent whatever else and they say they came up with the sg because they were the first ones to see how dangerous mortals could be so i kind of like that it seems like yeah. do we ever actually get a date when the sg was put into place because it seems from this like it was late sundering no maybe early shattering no we get nothing on that i think there's one source that says i came david invented it but at least some form of it seems to have existed in the late sundering Mm -hmm. it does predate the shattering that yeah you most can't say that in any case the other she's indifference to it is what drove balor to start experimenting with iron so Mm -hmm. and they're like oh this is good for us yeah there is some weird implications of like okay their fomorians and tuatha can have she children but like the other kiths are from other sources it's kind of weird yeah yeah, there's this whole like interbreeding thing that I was like, I, I don't think this has been fully thought out. Mm-hmm. But Although they've always had it being they were part Fomorian ancestry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were still she. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. And here it seems like they're saying they're very not, or they weren't at the time. Yep. And then they were like, the shattering comes, and they're like, well, maybe we're immune to that, like Clonair. Nope. Oh, let's nope. get out of here. <laughs> and it's that split second decision mention again. Yeah. I do like that they use the term the waking world. Instead mm-hmm. of the autumn world. Like, yeah. That's a good synonym for writing stuff. Yeah. So they went to Arcadia. They are very open about the fact that they don't remember anything. Some of them might have become changelings, but they don't really know or care. Mm-hmm. They established a lot of connections. So one of the more surprising things in this is the claim that the Balor, the Merfolk, and the Selkies were all kind of mm-hmm. related kin and separate from the rest of the Fae. I don't think that's come up anywhere before or since, and I'm not sure if I like it. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's fine for another random weird theory they have. I suppose. There's just nothing else supporting it anywhere else in the canon that I can recall. I assume it's because in the folklore, the Fomorians are said to live underwater, so they just ran with that. But yep. but they do have deep and abiding connections with the Black Spiral Dancers. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure the Black Spiral Dancers agree with that, but... <laughs> That's I, I have much less knowledge of them in Werewolf. So yeah, they know they were exiled from Arcadia, but they don't know why. They are trying to make the most of it, though, by controlling the supply of mortal glamour so they can control those who depend upon it. Many of them came back to Ireland, but they have sleeper agents all over the place. They participated in the Accordance War to sharpen their martial skills, but not so much to make enemies of the commoners. Mm-hmm. They wanted to reclaim their freeholds and to stoke resentment against the Sealy. 
there's this note about how they try to take the youngest hosts possible, like infants, <laughs> to grow up Balor. And these days they're focused on building alliances with the Black Spiral Dancers and the Fomori. They pretend to advance general Shadow Court aims while secretly planning to bring about the Evernight, which is just Endless Winter. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And to mollify the Seelie, they play the role of the Guardians of the Gates, keeping Nightmares of the Dreaming out of the Autumn World. Yep. And have an extra on that coming up. Yes. Overall, I think that the summary on, what is this, pages 112 and 113, these two columns under the modern era heading, that's like a great just overall summary for the house, mm -hmm. I believe. So then we get their society. They're militaristic. They're like a, an army family. Yeah, they even talk about they have the nobility titles separate from their army ranks, and the yeah. army ranks are more important. Yeah, they emphasize preparedness. And discipline, which kind of sounds silly to me, but they refer to their deformities as Balor's challenge and see it as something to be worn with pride and accommodated rather than trying to get rid of it or hide it. Yeah, or hide it. Which I wonder how that works in C twenty. Anyway, we'll get to we can get to that. We'll later. get there. We'll get there. Yeah. So High Lord Li Tili rules the house from his fortress under the sea, and then he's got a tower council of five advisors called generals. Mm -hmm. Well, four of them are generals. One is the head of security. And they like making glass fortresses. They do. Again, the folklore. I mean, that yep. was the thing. Balor lived in a glass tower. So. Mm -hmm. And then we've got the Iron Guard, who are like junior officers, mm -hmm. head of the propaganda corps, intelligence analysts, elite sorcerers and researchers, etc. They're high lords possibly going through final stages of bedlam. But yes. he keeps hiding in, under the sea with his black spiral dancers and you can't and when you send to there, it doesn't tend to come back. So, I, I believe the quote is, his fortress of glass, which occupies a pocket of the near dreaming in the bowels of a sunken ocean liner. Mm -hmm. I love it. Is that supposed to be the Titanic? No, that wouldn't be the Titanic. That's the wrong spot. <laughs> eh? But no, they're, they're not over by Newfoundland. They don't, they're not in Canada. I mean, it just says the icy waters of the Northern Sea. So Yeah, but the North, North Sea is not. Northern Sea. It could be North Atlantic. So. Yeah, okay. It makes me think, though, that there's like a connection with the puka here, with the dream burrows. Mm -hmm. So then oaths, they take them deadly seriously, but only when it's expedient for them to swear one. Mm -hmm. It says they will only require one. The oath of fealty mm -hmm. is the only one that they demand. And so then we get like the same assortment. Well, it's called the oath of majority, but yeah. Or actually there's different fealty ones, I guess, yeah. Majority, loyal service. I think it's the same... Some of them are the same names. Mm -hmm. The Oath of Adoption is also the Oath of Adoption and Ritual Naming. So that's a little mm -hmm. different from the way that the other two houses do it. Because that's if you want to join their house, uh, you're going to get something happening. Something is getting chopped off. Mm -hmm. But you get a permanent glamour. And the Oath of the Enchanted Servant, which is just mm -hmm. a raw deal for mortals. They have this whole thing about using oaths against others, and there's these sort of tilts to the Balor being masters of deploying oaths and using them, but we don't really get much more detail about that. It just says they do it. Well, I think this goes into, we get into a lot more politics stuff here, and a yeah. lot of it's like uh, them boasting about how great they are at it, but it, it, I get a lot of ironic irony from yeah. it. Like it, They're saying one thing, it's like, maybe you're not as good at this as you think you are. <laughs> That's true. I, I, read with, I think there's deliberate irony throughout this. Mm -hmm. So most of them are simply, but aggressively and proudly, unseely. Mm -hmm. There are a few disguised as seely in other houses, whom yeah. the rest of the house keep an eye on to make sure they don't turn into true believers in the seely code. Although at this point, the house flaw doesn't allow them to be seely. I don't know if that's just... Yes. 
but there are certain uncelia legacies that one could fake as certain other celia legacies as it surmise. And in truth, most of them are shadow courtiers. They are the heart of the shadow court, and they eventually plan to betray Elil and Leonin as thoroughly as mm -hmm. they will the rest of the Tuath and Chi. So. Yeah, and everybody knows them. They're not nice. And then some of their secret societies. These, I think, are pretty great overall. There's a lot of detail. I think they get the most about their societies out of all the houses mm -hmm. here. Well, this is they have the fewest of the, these houses. Yeah. Go figure. So there's the Eyes of Balor, where like the sleeper agent spies and assassins. Mm -hmm. I do like that the trigger phrase is, it is time for the eye to open. Just picturing like, something like the, the Captain America Hail Hydra thing. That they're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> the Masters of the Dance. Which just makes me laugh as thinking of something different. <laughs> Michael Flatley of yeah. House Balor. Yeah. But yes, they are the prodigal envoys. Yeah, especially the Black Spiral Dancers, because it actually maybe sharing Kinane and Kinfolk with Black Spiral's Kinfolk the way that Fiona and Fiona have shared Kinane Kinfolk. I think that kind of works. But... Yeah, for sure. The Royal Guardians, which is limited to 13 members, mm -hmm. and they guard the house treasures. And each member has an apprentice, and they're all basically just Sith. It's like the apprentices <laughs> keep assassinating their masters and stuff. Waybuilders core, more bright road stuff. They're the elders who decide to plan to die and to use their death to try to force open the bright road and keep it for House Balor alone. And a lot of their Samhain rituals are structured around that. Yeah, I like the one bit. Thus far, despite apparent evidence for the sacrifice achieving something, there's no concrete proof they're capable of doing <laughs> their intended job. Like, keep asking rates, and rates are like, uh, I'm not going to get this today. Yeah. They should be asking Karamat. That's who they need to have. And then the Guardians of the Gates. My favorites. Well, actually, probably my favorite. Yeah, so this is talking about the Fell, which got... Yeah, that's that's what I really love dark. about it. I love the Fell. <laughs> yeah, and it was mentioned before, and I'm like, they don't know what the Fell are. And I'm like, maybe these are Fomorians. Maybe <laughs> you didn't clue in that these are, like, low-ranking Fomorians or something. I mean, I kind of, I just think of them as Fumorian Chimera, basically. Mm -hmm. And there is this note that they can potentially get into the Autumn World. Yeah, but I love that they, they totally investigated the Fumori because of the name connection, but they don't right, right, right. think it, there's any connection here. And I'm like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> so I love the Fell as a concept, and the Guardians yeah. at the Gates are how the Balor sort of make themselves palatable to the Sealy, because they're like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll keep the Gates closed against these nightmares. Their counterparts are the Riders of the Fell, who I want to be my favorites, but they're not really. Because mm -hmm. they, they go and they find one of these Fell beasts to ride as like a rite of passage. But then they're just otherwise, we're going to be rebels. You can't tell us what to do, man. Well, the important thing about the Guardians of the Gate is they don't generally fight them, actually. They kind of bribe them. <laughs> and yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have a more friendly relationship than you might think. and They're just, tamers rather than... Yeah. And act like they're all like, oh, yeah, we're uh, totally fighting them for you and protecting you from these terrible fell. Let's make some fell show up here to make sure they're getting too complacent. Let's make some fell attack and we'll defend yeah. them. Whereas the fell riders, they ride Shai Hulud once and then think that makes them cool. Yep. And then the unseely code, Baylor style. <laughs> as if there were any other style. <laughs> they see Elil and Leonin as posers and they reiterate their organization as an army of nightmare, mm -hmm. basically. And, and they just embrace the light hardcore but like the least nice interpretation of the unsealing code there. yeah they dedicate themselves to change they prefer to hunt and seize glamour they believe that might makes right and they follow their instincts mm -hmm. 
the Sealy Code take was actually, I think, really interesting. So they were like, well, obviously we don't believe in any of this, but here's the Sealy houses who do and how you can turn it to your advantage when working mm -hmm. against them. So I thought that yes. was... And they have like each house gets their own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that they gave Dougal beauty as life. That was kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So death before dishonor goes to Gwydion. Mm -hmm. Love conquers all goes to Fiona. Beauty as life goes to both Dougal and Elenad. Mm -hmm. And never forget a debt goes to Liam. I'm like, yeah, that works. That works mm -hmm. well. Shadow court tenants, we have more dissing of Elenad. They see the mortal world as holding the keys to surviving Evernight. And so that's why it's important to understand it. They make allies of certain prodigals. They stockpile glamour in preparation for their rulership so that they can control access to the dreaming. They are taking advantage of Seelie weakness post David's disappearance and spread chaos to subvert them. And they hold the Samhain nightmares as sacred. Mm -hmm. I feel like all of this was already pretty self-evident in the Shadow Court book, though. So I'm kind of struggling to see how House Balor distinguishes themselves as their own entity, because that would make mm -hmm. them more interesting to me. Like... Yeah. The only really different thing that they've shown so far is their militarism, which I don't really find that compelling hmm. in terms of comparison with the Shadow Court book. This is but. definitely not a house description of something where I'd get a lot of internal complexity and drama by oh, okay. yeah, complexity <laughs> by playing one. But I think they can serve a role in a story. It's probably good. Yeah. And then we get their take on the Ashit that they invented. Yeah. Ours is right because we made it. They pay lip service to the domain of others. They apply war logic to dream. So they do lots of ravaging, mm -hmm. pillaging. But also they point out that nightmares are just as nutritious as other dreams. Mm -hmm. The right of endurance is a temporary convenience. <laughs> Rescue is purely for honing stealth tactics and martial prowess. They study the weaklings to whom they grant safe haven. Mm -hmm. But they also extract things out of it. I mean, people are grateful yeah. when you save them from finality and... The right to life, they have the least. Yeah. But they're pragmatic about when to take it. Mm -hmm. They they will eventually slay all of the foul Tuath and she. It's just a matter of when and how. The fosterage sounds fun. Oh. It's basically a year and a day of drill instruction, which they either endure or are slain. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. And then the saying is like a military graduation combined with a wild Zeder revel. Yep. And then they do the Fiori. And which case they have to go through some other tests that they often die from. So, Rough stuff. Politically, they're mostly encouraging everyone to fight it out in David's absence. And hopefully in the aftermath, they'll be able to spark their Evernight and assume their rulership. But until then, they just kind of declare disinterested allegiance to the various unseelie impulses. There's uh, very few purists who seek to elevate Seelie Bellor pretenders. So like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll switch off Seelie and Unseelie so long as the Seelie are our sleeper agents. There's sizable amounts of repudiators, whose whole thing is just being anti-Seelie and that's it, and ritualists who are trying to amass power in the Shadow Court. There aren't really Valor modernists, but yeah. those that say they are, are cannon fodder for the house. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. And then the anarchists, that's eh, a phase they all go through, they get more out of it. And that's what most Seelies see them as, is just like yeah. these rabble-rousers, and they're content with that. They're like, yeah, as long as that distracts them, great. Let them think we're disorganized and impulsive. And then there's those to be conquered, relations with others. Subtle. Under the current politics, they mentioned the war of rulership. Did that term come up anywhere else? I don't remember that. I think they're just referring to the upcoming... Yeah. 
It's just I don't remember anyone else giving it a name. Yep. Anyway, okay. Then we get the first the unseely houses. They are full of themselves and posers. Nearly as, yeah, Leonhan are cowards. Yep. That's really what it boils down to. <laughs> Dougal. Talented lapdogs. That's Dougal. I mean, they have nicer things to say about Dougal than most other groups. Well, because they think they're related and they're sad that they will never switch sides. Yeah. And they're like, the Google have like skills and stuff. They're just, yeah, take the wrong side. They probably are cousins, but they're so zealy. Leona are less trustworthy than the old real. <laughs> yep. Fiona. Fiona. Such a waste. Yeah. Great warriors sway too easily. Gwydion. The enemy. They're basically Seely Allele. They're not even good at manipulating. They just assume everyone will follow them. Yeah. The Liam are fools and cowards, but good potential lackeys in the future. And Skaha, they actually are intrigued by and interested in. They would mm -hmm. love to have them as subjects to be allies and teachers. Mm -hmm. And also the Balor seem to know the full details of the Leonin's curse as well. <laughs> Here it is. So the commoner section... It's interesting, they describe them as not arising from Tuahadudanan stock. Yeah. So are they saying the Shi are the only children of the Tuah? Yeah, I think they're saying that... The, I mean, that's the thing. Like, the Shi talk a lot about their parent, like, literal parentage being Tuaha and stuff. But, like, other kith don't tend to talk about literal parents being Tuaha. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm maybe Dark Ages Fey is like affecting my thinking, but I'm like, yeah, the Shi are the firstborn, but then the commoners are all of the others. But I think firstborn are just supposed to be like all the Fey who aren't in the anime. Mm. They also have, um, again, these repeated sort of references to eating the commoners. Yeah. Boggins are useless but exploitable homebodies. Ishu can be tempted into compliance by titles and adventure. Knockers, they kind of like. <laughs> Praise their craft and they'll be your, your lackeys. Yeah. They tell it like it is. Yeah. Puka, they just like to torture. Red Caps are a good cleanup crew slash shock troops. Yeah. Satyrs, do you remember um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, when the Sheriff of Nottingham is in one of his little tiffs and there's these like two women sitting and he turns and he's like, you, my room, 1030. You, mm -hmm. 1045. And bring a friend. That's what I feel like their attitude towards satyrs is. Yep. <laughs> Slua they don't like. Okay. Pasty-faced and toothless, if they weren't so obviously from Russian dreams, we might suspect blah, blah, blah. What does that even mean? <laughs> well, they can't be from Orients because they're not from, they're from Russia. I, but what? How, eh. Remember, they read the cycle and like the, the, the yeah, whatever. <laughs> anyway, they're great for espionage. So. No. Trolls. The unseelie ones are good. Yeah. And then the Thalane. They have a Thalane army, apparently. Mm. I don't know why they think, like, they're, they're like, oh, we have this secret relationship. But the other unseelie houses at least would know about this. So Yeah, yeah. Galane. I'm like, I'm sad they don't have an opinion of the anatomy there, because the anatomy are not from the Tuatha either, so they should be. Yeah. Clericon. They just want to take the Clericon stuff. Mm-hmm. Selkies and Merfolk. They like. <laughs> yeah, both of them, like, they have this alliance, which they're like, oh yeah, the Selkies deserve to be nobles, and the Merfolk let us hide out underwater. I bet the Selkies are very confused by that when it comes up. I, yeah, they must be. As must be any Merfolk who haven't actually met one of them. Well, I think the Merfolk being like, oh yeah, they're related to us, but they're also nobles. And it's like, 
Maybe. I don't know. Just imagine when they start bringing cold iron to a merfolk hideout. Yes. And then the prodigals. Uh, they hang out with vampires to get some dark glamour. Yeah, especially the, the the shadows. Yes. They spelled Sabat properly. And it makes sense that they would hang out with the Sabat. Yeah. Sabat. Werewolves they avoid with the exception of the Black Spiral Dancers, who they're trying to reestablish connections with because they get along. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, this is one of the cases where they only include vampires and werewolves under prodigals, and mm-hmm. then wraiths and mages are lumped in with the humans and the femur. Which makes sense. Cause... Which does make sense. <laughs> yeah. Humans are stupid, petty livestock. Well, I love the Sons of Adam Dalsides. This stupid name for humans was no doubt coined by some sealy moron who thought it sounded romantic. Which may or may not have been C.S. Lewis. But yeah. Ghosts, they don't know much, but they're interested in the Sandmen. Mm-hmm. Mages, they point to the technocrats as evidence of why the SG was needed. And the Fomori, they are allied with them. They were like, oh, you're our distant kin. And then it turned out like, oh, no, you're actually not. But they suspect maybe their human subjects can be made more like the Fomori. And that's a story hook for a crossover game. Mm-hmm. There's a sidebar on Balor challenges. And specific ones you might want to take. Yeah. They tend to go with the eyes or the tongue. Yeah, they don't have any like mechanical stuff inherently. But The really long arms, I'm like, I didn't think of that one. That would be interesting. So Lou in folklore is Lou Lafoda, which is Lou of the long arm. And I like that they've actually mm-hmm. played on that. Yeah, but it gets into like it'd actually be really annoying to have very long arms for the rest it of, is. Of the rest of your body. <laughs> it is annoying. That's all I'll say. Mm-hmm. Also silky skin with fur. And you get the house treasures. Yes. So there's the Baylor's crystal eye, which is actually supposedly literally Baylor's so I guess I always picture the Triumph cast of Storos as having the Baylor's eye in it, but I guess not. No, I think um I think Balor had it at one point. Mm. Or the Fomorians had it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, but um, It's like this, this eye beam blast in there. Yeah. He's like dark side. Mm-hmm. It does mention here the red star. So in the broader world of darkness cosmology, the red star that appeared was called the Eye of Balor and Changeling. Time of Thin Blood, I can't remember. I thought it was by release date came out after this, but then this book was probably significantly delayed. Yeah. So... Timelines are weird. I'm not sure where. In any case, this is, mm-hmm. I think, the first direct mention we get in Changeling of the Red Star. Yeah, I think so. They also have Blood Dross, which is just vampire video with glamour in it, because they take it from Malkavians or Toribu. There's the Steaming Spear, owned by Lou, which, holy cats, does that do a lot of damage. Oh, it's not owned by Lou. It's a counterpoint to Lou's, owned by the... Yeah, it's basically like a copy, but like the dark version. Yes, yeah, yeah. Similar. Mm-hmm. And the Cauldron of Fear. Yeah, that's weird, because it makes everybody terrified and leave. I'm like, mm, Fear Fog. It's not great if you're there, I guess. Yeah, I still like, like it, though. The only ones who actually could use that is House Fiona. <laughs> I still dig it. And, and then the Glass like, Fortresses. fortresses. Yep. Yeah. Which don't really have any, like, benefits. It's just for flavor. Oh, I, keep, I just keep picturing, like, these, like, Baylor children, like the older ones, going, stop throwing stones. Then we get some of their famous and infamous. Mm-hmm. There are suggestions that Balo and Lu might be reborn. But until then, we've got Li Tili, the mad recluse high lord hiding out underwater with a guard of Black Spiral Dancerkin. Who's missing an eye, but earlier with the whole Baylor's crystal eye, so he didn't want to pluck out his eye. I'm like, he could just stick it in his eye where he's missing. Mm-hmm. But anyway. That would be too easy. Yeah. 
Speaking of eyes, we have Lady Ethan of the Gleaming Eyes, head of security. She's um she's creepy. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's like, oh yeah, she's the expert in all forms of espionage and surveillance, but she's also a bisexual dominatrix who does experiments on humans. So one of them, kinder, gentler, Baylor. Yeah. There's Raganal, who hangs out with prodigals and has gone peculiar. He's the dance master. Yes. <laughs> Scary. He likes howling at the moon. Mm-hmm. Lord Grodolf, the troll commoner general. Lady Moya, the hand of vengeance. And um, she collects body parts. And Kahl, the first ruler of the house. The original prophet king and treasure keeper who's fabled to return. Mm-hmm. That's three fable to return. Yeah, I kind of take him, though. I like his little third eye thing going. Mm-hmm. And then we get a template, which is basically as uninteresting to me as the Leona template was. But mm-hmm. to your point about NPCs, I guess if you just need a fell rider, here's one. Yeah, this one I find the least interesting, actually. But the dots are accurate. The dots are perfectly done. Mm. I checked. <laughs> okay. What were your thoughts about the Balor chapter overall? I, yeah, I thought it was like sort of ironic detachment. It was, it was very crass and straightforward, but yeah, I sort of read it in character. It's it's like, it's like reading Guide to the Technocracy for me, <laughs> where you're like, you can't, you can't take it at face value. Yeah. I just found it so one dimensional. Like the other two at least had different facets that didn't all circle back to the same thing. Like here, it's just yeah. boo to woo balor, like over and over. Yeah. I found it the least useful for actually using them in a game yeah not bad by any means yeah just... but it's like it, it felt like they were going more for this ironic thing than being useful for a gaming book but yeah, yeah. i would have liked to see some merits and flaws or something in there too that would have been nice and a word form out of <laughs> oh so yes this is where they explain that justin achille helped bring this book to completion and it seems like he was just kind of the developer as a transition to Nikki and Jackie taking over. Mm-hmm. Although they spelled Jackie's name wrong. <sighs> and then we get like the most extensive bios for two White Wolf authors that I think have ever been committed to print. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. They're two heads of the Asheville Freelance Monster. Yeah. And we get like a complete list of their credits, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Also, LARP form at AOL.com. Oh, yeah. There is an ad for Kithbook Puga. And then the. <laughs> Phil Brucato ad. Phil Brucato is back. Did you know he was the original developer for Mage the Ascension? I did not know that. Well, that's what it says right here. He's in hell, he claims. And then on the back cover, the back cover, if you can squint and understand this poorly drop-shadowed text, which talks about the disappearance of David R.D. and the aftermath of that, but one of the things that this book promises is a new art, which did not appear. Dismayed by that. I suspect it might have been the Discord art that we later got in um, mm. Denizens of the Dreaming, because that would fit with House Bell. Oh, wait. I'd have to go get my physical copy, but the PDF does not promise that. Although it still spells David Ardy. What does it say for that bullet point? New merits and flaws. Treasures. Is that all it says? Yeah. <laughs> New merits and flaws, comma treasures. Interest. So they just they just redacted and even a new art. Yep. How about that? But that's the book. Yep. So overall thoughts. Okay, how do I put this? I mean, it has its flaws, but I think it's a pretty solid workhorse 
of a lot of text on something that like I use, but like I kind of wish it was other parts of the game had more of it because do I need 50 pages on each of the three on Sealy houses? Like that's just like extra pages beyond what we already. It occurred to me that if you took three Kith books mm-hmm. and took out their front and back matter and all but one of their templates and stuck them all together, that's the same length as this book. First edition Kith yeah, books. This is like three Kith books stuck together just yeah. for like if we got this book and a whole bunch of other changeling books, I'd like it more, if that makes any sense. Because then I wouldn't feel like we missed out on other things. And I get that that's a sort of well, not really how the writing works too. Maybe it makes sense. Like it's just this either it's either this or nothing for this book. But but I think it's actually solid and if you can figure out how to fit it into C twenty, because they've changed two of these houses. So I think it's still useful. Oh, I think it's useful. It's one of my favorite books in the series because it does have the room to go satisfyingly in depth for each house. The Sealy Book of Houses was okay and maybe sufficient, but this one, I I don't think any single chapter hit the mark exactly, but all three of them had the core of what I wanted. Yeah, it's all, we've definitely had higher highs in other books, but we've had much lower lows. So yeah, it's it's reasonable, useful. Yeah, and I still think it's solid enough to be Mm -hmm. for anyone who's interested in playing a character for one of these houses. Because even like with the change in Leon and mechanics, that doesn't necessarily change how they behave and what their goals are and everything. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's pretty substantial, but you can just put back their flaw to be like, must engage in Rhapsody at least once a month or else they age. And that would get rid of the whole limitation on the dreaming. And I think they work fine then. I'd kind of do that anyway or else. And yeah. they can still have the goal of bringing about Endless Winter to revitalize Arcadia mm-hmm. without having a deeply personal stake in it. That just makes them more Shadow Court than mm-hmm. Leona. But... Yep. Anyway, do you want to get to the questions? Let's do it. Okay, so Sand Shaker asks three questions, some of which I kind of answered. One is, House Alil, best in Seelie House or best house overall? Mm-hmm. I do not agree that they're the best unseely house if you count the later unseely houses there's definitely ones that work better but maybe the best unseely house maybe yeah tight race house darian's my favorite house i know they're so great well and i have i have deep affection for leonin because the first character i ever played was a leonin so yeah and i mean verich i'm kind of a fan of too for similar things i might use for allele and it's anyway where do you all stands on leonin's ever easing curse I think it started out too strict, and I think by C20 it's too lax. And Yeah, 2E was perfect. <laughs> yeah, on that one, yeah. But I, I think you and I, I think, enjoy playing tragic characters, and a lot of players don't, and so it's a high bar for new yeah. players in particular. But I think the flaws, I think it does have to be somewhat tragic for the house. It's just not the same. Yeah, yeah. Thing. They're not tragic. I could see turning the dial on the tragedy, but it's just not tragic at all now, and like the whole description mm-hmm. of them aging in Arcadia for 600 years just wouldn't even apply. But yeah. Also, question, Baylor, cool dudes or just a bunch of jerks? I'm going to go with just a bunch of jerks. The, the latter, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yep. There's nothing cool about Baylor. And I think they're okay with that. They don't need to be cool. Yep. Luna asks, if you had to actually join one of these houses with yourself in a time, like I say, you're a standard Cathane, which one would it be and why? I mean, I'd have to join Allele. Well, so... <laughs> of <Yeah>, these three... <laughs> <laughs> like, if I had to join one of these three as presented here, it would be Elil. Yeah. <laughs> but if we're going with C20 and the nerfing of the Leonin flaw, then... Yeah. I mean, I have a Leonin tattoo on my back, so 
that should probably yeah. kill you. I mean, Leonin would be great. Yeah, in the C20, it's like, yeah, it's like hardly any drawbacks. It's great. Oh no, I have to muse once a month. Unless I'm in the dreaming, in which case it doesn't matter. Ferret asks, I see House Bellor's great disability rep and changeling. How would you personally ease their obvious bad guyness aspect that is painted in this book for other games? I'm not sure exactly what's meant here, but if I understand this correctly, I think the issue is their megalomania kind of precludes them from being framed as like Avengers against ableism. And you'd have to get rid of the one to allow for the other, which is what I assume it means. With the whole house, I'd find a different group to be the disability rep and then yeah. tone down that aspect in Baylor would be the way I'd go. Not because there's like, I could definitely see why you'd read it that way, but like the rest of the house is not like that. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, to tone it down would make them, I, I would say they're more strongly associated with their bad guyness than with, with yep. their challenges. So yeah. Yep. How do you feel about Balor's claim to making merfolk and selkies in their lore? Like I said, there's zero basis for it elsewhere except for the underwaterness, and I'm I'm indifferent to it. <laughs> I'm fine with them making with them claiming it. With them claiming it, sure. I think but... merfolk and selkies are just as related to Balor as vampires are all red caps, and mm. you know, like yeah. the werewolves are all puka. <laughs> yeah. And those are the questions. Yeah. Oh, well, that was a book. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Indeed. You can uh, find us, changelingthepodcast.com. You can send us an email, podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. Please join our Discord where we talk about, there's a lively debate over the Leonin flaw in C20. Which house, best house? Which house, best house? Uh, that's at uh, discord.me slash ctp. Yeah. You can send us a toot changelingpod at dice.camp and we have a YouTube channel for Changeling the Podcast as well as a Facebook page for Changeling the Podcast. Uh, all links will be in our show notes. Oh, yes. <laughs> all links will be provided in the show notes. Yeah. And once again, I'm Josh. I have been known for this instantiation of the podcast as Puka. And uh, stay ready for Changeling 5th Edition where the House Leannon will have to have gotten vaguely looked at a dreamer in the past year unless they don't feel like it. I stood near an artist once, and then I didn't feel like my back hurt quite so much. This episode is sponsored by House Leonin's Rhapsody Foundation and their Shooting Star Fellowship. Are you a struggling creative trying to get recognition for your work at last? Searching for meaningful mentorship in the medium of your choice? Want to burn high in a blaze of glory? Contact House Leonin today! If selected for the fellowship, you'll receive advice, skills training, helpful critique, and most importantly, the fulfillment of knowing that you've put something special into the world. All production expenses are covered for the duration of the fellowship, and the foundation even provides a life insurance policy to grantees. Remember their motto, Ars longa vita brevis est. Life is short, but art is forever. Send in your application today via our podcast at www.patreon.com changelingthepodcast. You can also stop by our Discord to meet some of the current fellows, Derek, Dorkatus, Oreo, Razgabuz, Sandjigger, Sija, Terry Robinson, and Tricerapath. Thanks to them for their contributions, to you the audience for your attention, and until next time, keep on dreaming.